open them to Romans chapter number three, and we are going to look at the first eight verses in Romans chapter three. And we have been walking through the book of Romans since the beginning of this year, and starting obviously in chapter number one. And, and what we began talking about is just how Romans chapters one, two, and three really reveal to us just how hopelessly sinful human beings are, all of us, without exception. And as God presents his divine perspective on the, the nature, the very state of humanity, you need to understand that it is not the power of positive thinking. It, 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 God does not take the perspective that if you just think positively, everything will be okay. When the reality is just the opposite of that. But what we have in Romans 1, 2, and 3, maybe more clearly than anywhere else in the Scripture, is God's perfect and holy view of what sin has done to destroy the human race. And there's no escaping it. The details of that were laid out for us in chapter number 1. And in chapter number 2, what we saw is really the theme of God's judging man as a result of that. And so the beginning part of chapter number 2 dealt with God's dealing with the Gentiles, the non-Jewish population, the majority of the world, the, those who would have been considered outside of the covenants of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the nation of Israel, and therefore typically pagan, non-religious people. And then the last part that we saw last week was God specifically dealing with the Jews, the nation of Israel, and in their spiritual relationship with Jehovah God. And what we did last week was we made some general applications to anybody who would be a religious person. And we saw in those last verses of chapter 2 basically a picture of what religious people can expect when they stand before the ultimate judgment of God if they have not received the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Today, we are in chapter number three. And in chapter number three, what we have here is a picture of what that judgment's gonna look like. What we have here in the first eight verses really is man's reaction to this pending judgment as it's coming. And in these eight verses, what we have is a series of questions. Actually, there are nine questions in eight verses. And, and we have God's perfect answer to all of those questions. Man, as a sinful being that we are, wrestles with this idea of ultimate judgment, wrestles with the, the, the judgment that's coming, and therefore, naturally, we seek to justify ourselves in our sinful condition. Nobody wants to be judged. And so we seek to do that. That's pictured for us in these scriptures that we have here. And so with these questions that come up in the mind of a sinful man willing or desiring to justify himself, we then have God's perfect, holy answers to all of those questions. And they're preserved for us today so that we, as we read it in 2014, can gain insight into what we can expect. And so the title I've given to today's message is God's Answers to Man's Questions. And certainly as that relates to judgment. And not surprisingly, as we walk through this, you will see that the scriptures themselves divide these questions into three broad categories. And so we'll see those as we continue on. Let's read Romans 3, starting in verse number 1. Follow along, please. I'll read through verse 8. What advantage, then, hath the Jew? 
Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousness, if our unrighteousness, excuse me, commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Take a look at that in just a second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before this passage of Scripture, I pray that you would open our eyes of understanding. Lord, we all probably think questions like this as we wrestle with the idea that you are holy and perfect and that you will come and answer these questions. My prayer today, Lord, is for each and every one of us, as many of us as there are listening to your word today, we each have our own questions. We each have our own issues that we wrestle with. And my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would give each of us the answers that we need. Lord, if there be people here today who are not sure that they have a relationship with you, if they're not sure that, God forbid, their life tragically ended in an instant, that their home would be forever with you in heaven, that today would be the day that they finally realize that all of their fighting and justification is futile and that you are the only way, the truth and the life, and that they would surrender their hearts to you humbly and ask you for forgiveness and invite you to come into their hearts and their lives as their Lord and Savior. I pray that you would do that work. I pray that you would revive us and that you give us a fresh view and an understanding of how to live our life, understanding that there is a pending judgment for us all, and how it lays out is what you'll explain to us. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us this warning. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, three broad categories, one simple word for each one. The first one is word. It is about the word of God. It starts out in the first two verses, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Obviously, this is a continuation of what would have ended in chapter number two. So for context, let's go back to chapter number two and read the last two verses of chapter number two to understand the context of that question. It says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. It goes on and says, okay, well, if that's the case, and I I reworded the question for you in your notes, if the only real Jew is one inwardly, what good is it to be a physical Jew? What advantage is there then to be of the nation of Israel if really all that matters is what's inside in your heart? And you know, that's a fair question. God immediately gives an answer and he says, you know what, there's a huge advantage because the Jews are the ones who God gave his word to. It's all about how God gave his word. It says, unto them are committed 
the oracles of God. That word oracle, it has as its root the word oral. They're spoken words. The oracles of God are when God speaks to man audibly, verbally. And whenever God did that, when God spoke his word originally, when God inspired and revealed his holy will to man, he did it orally. Those are the oracles of God. And all of the oracles of God were given to the Jews. They were not given to Gentiles. Now, when we refer to God's word, we typically refer to it as the written word. And we're going to kind of see how that all puts together. Actually, here's kind of how it plays out. God decides that it's time to communicate with man. And so he speaks out of heaven to man orally. In the Old Testament, we heard all about it, right? The prophets, right? Ultimately through the New Testament, through the apostles. And God spoke directly from heaven to men. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 how these holy men of God, having received God's spoken word, then spake those words of God to others. So God's inspiration to man was first communicated to other men, again, orally, 2 Peter chapter number 1. But certainly somebody recorded what was said. And what we end up with is a written record. And that written record, according to the scriptures themselves, has not only been written down accurately, but has been preserved for us so that we can know that we have an accurate copy. And Psalms chapter 12, 6 and 7 make that very clear, where the words of the Lord are pure words. They're recorded accurately. And they are refined in a furnace that they are purified, they are kept, they are preserved from this generation forever. That's a promise of God. Now, either God did that or he did not. If he did not do that, then he's a liar. Of course, he's not a liar. The Bible says God cannot lie. He said that he would do that. He absolutely did that. So we can know that the written record that we hold is the accurate representation of God's inspired, spoken oracles. So when we talk about the written word of God, we refer to it as Scripture, script is what you write. So it is scripture, and the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the scriptures, right, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So God has been active throughout the entire process. And what we have today, a couple thousand years later now, is just what's written. God is no more speaking audibly from heaven and people are not getting brand new revelation that is unique and distinct from that which is written. We have what is written. But when God originally gave it, every single man that he ever gave it to on that day was a Jew. All the way through. And so even the book of Genesis, okay, before there is a formation of the nation of Israel, understand that the book of Genesis it was revealed to and written down by a guy named Moses, right? Long after the Jewish nation was established and they were the people that they were called out by God. And so you could take Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon and the prophets and you can work your way all through the Old Testament and they're all Jewish people. You come into the New Testament and you've got all the apostles and you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, we'll mention in a minute, John, the apostle Paul, you've got Peter, you've got Jude, you've got James. They're all Jews. The big question that most people have is what about Luke? I've always heard that Luke was a Gentile. Have you ever heard that? 
And a lot of people think that's the one book that was written by a Gentile author. I beg to differ. I say on the basis of Romans chapter 3 and verse number 2, it's impossible. Luke had to have been a Jew. He absolutely had to have been a Jew. Now, that's not a point. You can, look, you can argue about it if you want to. I'm just saying when God said he gave his word, he gave it to the Jews. That's what he said. And so that's what it has to be. That's who he was. Listen, the oracles of God were given to the physical seed of Abraham, not the spiritual seed of Abraham. They were not given to the church, the Gentile bride of Christ. The oracles of God were given to Abraham's physical seed. If I were to quote for you Psalm 147 and verse 19, it says, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. So it is the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which then becomes Israel and has the 12 tribes and goes on from there. What advantage then has the Jew? What advantage has circumcision? Well, much in every way, because unto them were given the oracles of God. The advantage is in the sense that the Gentiles, or the disadvantage for the Gentiles, you could say, is that the Gentiles only had nature and their conscience. We call that the general revelation of God. We talked about that when we were in chapter number one. And God has a way of generally revealing that he exists. And the way that he reveals that, as we saw in chapter number one and in chapter number two, specifically in chapter number one, more about nature. In chapter number two, we talked more about conscience. And God's general revelation is through those means that exist for every human being on the planet, okay? That's all the Gentiles got. That's not enough to save you. That's just enough to make you know that there is a supernatural being that created everything. And if you respond to that general revelation, God will then lead you to what we call in theological circles the special revelation or the specific revelation, which is God's word, okay? So everybody who wants to know more about God if they're sincere in their heart and they want it, I don't care what country you were born in, I don't care what religious tradition you were born under, I don't care how remote the tribe of people they live with is, if they want to know more, God who sees all and knows all knows the hearts of man and will see to it that he moves them from the general to the specific revelation that God has. And even in the general revelation of nature and conscience, I mean, that's cool. God has his way of communicating with man, but I want you to understand something. Nature was marred by the curse of sin. That's Genesis chapter 3. The curse came in and God cursed man and there was punishment for the serpent and there was a curse put on nature as well. And man's conscience, the Bible says very clearly, for example, in Titus 1.15, that your conscience can be defiled. In fact, it goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 2 and it talks about how your conscience can be seared with a hot iron. In other words, if you continue to turn your back on that still small voice inside of you that is saying, hey, hey, stop doing that, or watch out, or that's wrong, and you know it, and you just continually squash that revelation of God as he's trying to whisper to you, you eventually can defile and sear off your conscience to not hear anything anymore. Can you imagine how har much harder it is then to receive any kind of revelation from God when all of those avenues have at least been clouded, if not shut off. The general revelation of God at some level has kind of lost its power. But not the special revelation. 
The special revelation, God's word, is, is perfect. Listen, the Jews started out from square number one with the oracles. I mean, they had God's very word. They knew exactly what God expected of them. And so I put in your notes just a list of some things to remember. The scriptures have not been diminished in any way, right? And the transmission from oral to written. Because the scriptures, according to Psalms 12, are pure words. We saw that. According to Psalm 119 and 130, that they give light and they give understanding to the simple. In John 17, 17, the Lord Jesus praying, he says that the scriptures, thy word, is truth. It is truth. It doesn't just reveal truth. It's also life, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And it's able to keep you from sin, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto unto the word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The word of God has the power and the ability to do all of that for you. So you say, look, he is a true Jew who is one inwardly, not outwardly. And someone might object and say, well, then what big deal is it to be a Jew? Let me tell you, it's a big deal. God gave you his absolute, clearly revealed will. You can know exactly what he expected of you, Jew. Exactly. That's a huge advantage, right? Well, do you realize that practically speaking for our lives, we today, where we sit right now, in a, in a church with a completed word of God in the United States of America, as English-speaking people with readily available copies of perfectly preserved scripture available to us, we also have a huge advantage do you realize? Of course you realize. We talk about missions all the time around here. We bring in peoples that are reaching out to peoples who do not have full copies of Scripture in their language. Do you realize the ridiculous advantage that we have available to us? I, I tell the Albanian stories a lot because they're my stories. It's my life experience. But when I went to Albania in 1992, there were no Scriptures in their language. The Albanian peoples who now the country was open and missionaries were able to come in and share the word of God with them, the first ones to believe were those who spoke foreign languages, like my wife. And they were able to read and understand the scriptures in the other languages that they knew until eventually the scriptures become available to that people group. There are peoples all over the world who do not have the advantage that we have. What advantage do we have, American church, well, we have a huge advantage because we have the God-breathed, preserved, inspired scriptures in our hands. That's, that's the advantage. So the first set of questions that come up deal with this issue of God's word. But you know as well as I do that simply owning a copy or several copies is not enough, right? Ultimately, you have to believe it to make it valuable for you. And that's our second point. Our second point is around the word faith. And the questions come under the context of this theme of faith. Verses three and four say, for what if some did not believe? See, the issue is faith. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So I put it in other words. 
in your notes. Maybe it'll help you think of it a different way. Basically, it's pretty simple. If some people don't believe the gospel, does that nullify the process for others? That's what he's asking. If some people say, nah, I don't believe that, does that mean that it's not effective for other people who do believe it? And God's answer is, God forbid. God forbid. Listen, that's ridiculous logic, is it not? We sit here and we think, yeah, of course that's ridiculous logic. Can I just tell you, as, as, as just a very brief side note, that ridiculous logic at some level is propagated by churches who believe in what is commonly referred to as reformed theology. Sometimes we call it Calvinism. Sometimes they talk about predestination and election and some of those things. And these are areas that smart, good people disagree. I understand. But I am firmly convinced that this area is an error. And one of many examples would be this very issue we're dealing with. If you were to study the subject of Calvinism in a theology class, the, the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, defines the five um, tenets of that theology. And basically what they stand for is the total depravity of man, that's the T, the unconditional election that God chooses who's going to be saved and who's not. L stands for a limited atonement, meaning that Jesus Christ only died for the elect. He didn't die for the sins of the whole world, like the Bible says, but the, rather that term the whole world really only means the whole world of the elect. So the people are going to hell, God chose for them to go to hell, tough. I stands for irresistible grace. When God begins to call a man, it is absolutely impossible for that man to say no to God. And then P stands for the preservation of the saints. And in that, if nothing else, in these verses right here, what we see is a direct affront to the idea of a limited atonement and an irresistible grace, which I think is indefensible. Because to accept those, according to them, if somebody were able to reject God's truth, they say that's impossible. If somebody were able to reject God's truth, that would nullify the whole truth. Then God is not God. He's not, he's not eternally sovereign. And that's just not true. But there's good people who really think that's true and God's answer to that. What if some people don't believe? Does that nullify it for everybody? He says, God forbid. And he goes on, and he makes a statement that is a statement you should have memorized. This is a statement that you should highlight. This is a great verse. This is something you should always have in your mind for the rest of your life, regardless of the situation you find yourself in. Know this. Let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, truth is truth, regardless of who believes it. Truth stands stubbornly and says, I am. You deal with it however you want to deal with it. It would be great if you would believe in it. But if you choose not to, that's your choice. It does nothing to its effect for other people. It's a great verse to memorize. If you believe it, it's to your advantage, okay? It affects your destiny. But if you don't, it doesn't affect anybody else. And so I said it this way, faith alone is not enough, even if it's sincere. It's the object of your faith that matters. Listen, there are billions and billions of people on this earth that believe in things. 
right? It doesn't matter that they just believe. It's not enough to say, I believe. It's what do you believe in? What is the object of your faith? Are you believing in your good works? Are you believing in some series of sacrifices that you do? Are you believing in that the fact that you have some ancestry with a group of people that you think is right? Or are you believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross? It's the object of our faith. You have to believe the gospel. That's the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins according to the scriptures. If you believe that, then you shall be saved. Because, friends, listen, truth is not in the eyes of the beholder. It's it's not situational. It's not relative. It's not personalized. Well, you can personalize it how you apply it, but the the truth of the truth, the, the facts stand regardless of your personal situation. It's not preferential. Listen, for example, it's a crazy example, it's used a lot, but it's effective. There could be a person who sincerely believes that there is no such thing as gravity. There could be, right? But if that person steps off the Empire State Building without a parachute, they will be subject to the truth of gravity regardless of their faith. And somebody will scrape them off the sidewalk with a shovel. Because it's not faith that saves you. It's faith in the gospel. (laughs) It's faith in Jesus Christ. And it matters not if other people believe it or don't believe it as to whether it's effective for you you got to know this. If everyone disagrees with the Scripture, then everyone is wrong. It's just that simple. Let God be true, but every, every, without exception, every man a liar. And if they are sincere, then they are sincerely wrong. And that's what God is communicating to us. One with God is a majority. And many of us who try and stand for God's truth, we believe it, we love it, we don't alter it, we try to submit to it. And we find ourselves in a sea of people who contradict it and twist it and add to it and subtract from it and do things to make it not so maybe weighty on them. I don't know their motivations. And you are tempted to give in. You are tempted to let it slide just a little. You are tempted to allow those things to change your mind away from the truth and to give in to some level of situational ethics and grading on the curve. And God says, don't do it. Don't do it. He says, every man, without exception, and that could include scholarship, higher education, Christian or secular, religion, listen, whenever anybody rejects that book, you can just drop kick that guy through the goalposts of life and move on. Because this is all that matters. This is truth. Do not be confused about that. 
It's not what I say. You should, if you are intelligent people, and I'm sure that you are, you will not just blindly take what I say. You will compare it to what God says. If it compares correctly in the context, awesome. If not, forget Jeff. Forget anybody. Go with what God says every time, and you will be safe. You will be on good ground. It goes on, and it says, as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 51 and verse number 4. He quotes Psalm 51 and verse number 4, which says, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Psalm 51, for those of you that don't know, is the recorded confession of King David after his sin with Bathsheba. Many of you are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, and so David had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, which then also ultimately led to the, the murder, the planned murder of her husband. And, and the, the sin is, is awful. And ultimately, David is made aware of that through the prophet Nathan, and, and David repents before God, and he begs God for forgiveness as a result of the terrible things that he did. And that confession is recorded in Psalm 51. And he gets to verse 4, and it says that thou, God, mightest be justified when thou speakest the oracles. So he quotes it here. David knows that God's word goes forth and it stands and it's absolutely correct. And he goes on and he says, and that thou, God, may be clear when thou judgest. So God's word is right. You're justified when you speak. God's judgment is just. You're right to judge me or anybody. I'm crying out for mercy. I'm so sorry. Now, if you look back in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 3, you'll see that the Holy Spirit takes a little bit of liberty and changes the wording just a little to give us more understanding about what's going to happen. Because in Romans 3, 3, it says that thou mayest be justified in thy sayings, virtually the exact same thing. But then it goes on and it says, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Somebody here is judging God. See, in David's version, God was judging him, and he understood it, and he submitted to it. But in the Romans version, as we're coming up with these questions, right, and God is answering them, he quotes Psalm 51.4, recognizing the fact that there will be people judging God. What, what's that all about? Well, I think God is giving us more revelation into what it's going to be like at the great white throne judgment. This is a foretaste of the great white throne judgment. And this is kind of how it's going to play out. So man who has rejected Christ ultimately at the end of time will stand before God. And God will judge man. And God is justified in doing that. That's what Romans 1 and 2 have made very clear so far. And according to Romans 3, what we'll see is that man will try to justify himself before God by accusing, judging, condemning God as though God's judgment is unjust, as though God's judgment is unfair. And God will let him do it. God will respond then 
to the self-justifying sinner with what is written. And what is spoken, the oracles. And then God judges the guilty. And so this great white throne ultimate judgment scenario of the sinners we find pictured in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, and we're not going to go there, but the first part of that chapter, we have the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And there are three specific temptations. And in those three specific temptations, the devil comes before the Lord Jesus Christ. And every single time, all I want you to see in this passage is this. Every single time, the Lord Jesus Christ responds with, it is written, it is written. And then the last time he actually says, it is said. So you have the scriptures, the oracles, they're, they're, they're interchangeable. And so Jesus Christ himself, again, there are these accusations. If thou be the Son of God, right? And he just says, it's written. And what happens then? At the end of that exchange, the devil has got nothing to say. <laughs> he just shuts up and goes away. Well, we see it again in Matthew chapter 22, verses 29 to 34 is a story where Jesus is being attacked. He's being questioned, not physically, verbally, uh, by the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're trying to accuse him. And the story in this one is about uh, the Sadducees that don't believe there's a resurrection dream up this scenario where a man had a wife and he dies. And the tradition is the brother has to take the wife. And so she marries the brother and the brother dies. And then she marries the next brother and that dies. And there's seven brothers and they all had her for a wife. And they're trying to set Jesus up. And they say, so in the resurrection, which we don't believe in anyway, that's why it's so ridiculous, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They're trying to trap Jesus, see? Can I just say good luck with that? Jesus answers, you do err not knowing the scriptures. <laughs> it is written. He goes on and it says, Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? So he gives the sinner the opportunity to accuse him. He gives the sinner the opportunity to mouth off and try and justify himself, just like those Sadducees. And he just calmly responds with the oracles. He calmly responds with, Let God be true and every man a liar. What did those Pharisees and Sadducees do after Jesus did that? Nothing. They shut up and walked away. They just walked away. Look back in Romans chapter 3 and look at verse number 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Because at the great white throne, a sinner gets his chance to declare his case and to complain. But once he's done, God responds with his word and declares guilt. And he will say something like what is recorded in Matthew 25 and verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And all the sinner will be able to say then is, Amen. My damnation is just. And what we will see play out is what you read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. 
of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue, even the devil's. Everyone, because their damnation is just, they realize that there's nowhere to turn, they've had their say, it's all over, their mouths are shut, and they go away. That's the picture. It's our faith. It's God's word, and then our faith in that word, which then ought to cause us to live accordingly. It ought to affect our lives, and that's the third point. It's obedience. The third category of questions deals with obedience. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. In other words, if my wrongdoing demonstrates God's goodness, doesn't God owe it to me to let me get away with it? I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, my mom would say, Jeff, you need to make something of yourself, even if it's a bad example. Okay, I mean, you know, kids do dumb stuff, and so it's like, okay, the dumb stuff you're doing, at least, you know, you help somebody out. At least you're a bad example. People know what not to do, right? And uh, we take that logic with us, and we try and stand before God. In other words, if God gets the glory when I sin, isn't he unfair for judging me? I mean, he gets the glory, what does he want? (laughs) And his answer, like the second question, God forbid. God forbid. Can I say kindly that that's a dumb question? It's the question of a sinner trying to justify himself. He's trying to justify his sin. That's why Paul said, I speak as a man. I speak as a man. Because that's the answer of a man, a sinful man. Listen, we talk about how these first three chapters of Romans dealing with sin, we kind of titled it broken, because man is incurable. We are broken. We are sinful. We are hopeless. And we are so broken, we will even dare to blame our sin on God. Remember Adam in the garden? Adam, where art thou? Okay, and he comes and says, what'd you do? He said, well, you know, the woman that you gave me, <laughs> she caused me to eat. Is he blaming the woman? Yeah. Is he blaming God? Yeah. But you know what? No real, true disciple of Jesus Christ would ever ask that question. I mean, he would be like David. He would shed tears. He would cry out for mercy. He would beg God to not judge him, to give him a break. But he would not stand boldly and defiantly and parade his sin self-righteously as though as a result of this you get whatever you want out of it, but you, don't, you got no call on me. No true disciple would ever do that. So check it out. Because the Bible is very, very clear, and I gave you a few points in your notes. First off, God never made any man to sin. It's very clear in James 1, 13 and 14, right? God does not tempt 
man to sin. But man sins as a result of when he is drawn away by his own lust and he is enticed and in a moment of weakness he gives in. By the way, we do that far too frequently. But it's never God's fault. He doesn't tempt us to sin. He doesn't make us sin. And God gets absolutely no pleasure from sending men to hell. The book of Ezekiel is very clear. Chapter 18 and verse 23, chapter 18 and verse 32. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None whatsoever. It's going to happen. It makes me sad. I don't want that. And it's certainly not his will for any man to perish. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. God doesn't will or desire any man to perish. Spend eternity apart from him. Man will go there of his own will, not God's. Yet somehow, God does make it clear. He will receive the glory that is due his name, regardless of how you choose to live. He absolutely will do that. Even if it's out of sin, even if it's out of hell, God will receive the glory. But here's what I want you to understand. We should glorify God by obedience, not by disobedience. We should glorify God by obedience, not by disobedience. Okay, so check it out. Mark chapter 5 is a very well-known story of a demon-possessed man. And Jesus comes and he heals this man, okay? In verses 6 and 7 of Mark chapter 5, Jesus shows up and says, But when he, the demoniac, saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? Does that ever strike you funny sometimes that the devil, they're crying out this truth, this eternal truth to glorify God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Have you ever noticed in the Bible how devils worship and praise Jesus? There's another story in Acts chapter 16, if you ever want to go there, and it's the Apostle Paul, and, and, and there's, a, there's a, a girl, a damsel, it says that she has a spirit of divination. And she's following Paul and Barnabas around, and she's basically saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God. And Paul turns around, and he's like, stop it, shut up. Isn't that weird? In Mark chapter 1 and verse 34, again, earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ just getting kicked off. It says, And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils, notice, and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't allow them to speak even though they were saying good things? Ever cross your mind? How about maybe? Because Jesus doesn't need or want devils testifying for him. How about he doesn't want that kind of glory? At least not now. Philippians 2, 9, 10, and 11, it will happen, but not now. That's not what he wants. You know what he wants? He wants disciples, his disciples, to speak up now and to glorify him before a lost world. 
And when they do that, to back it up with a clean life. That's what he wants. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for us, we who call him Lord, we who are his children, to boldly step out and glorify him with our mouth and with our deeds. That's what he wants from us. If you go back to Romans chapter 3 and verse number 7, it gives a supposition that's not true. It says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I judged as a sinner? Well, it's not true. You suppose that it is true, but it is not true. It is not true that the truth of God abounds more through your lie. It abounds more through obedience, through the truth, right? Because if it weren't the case, then God wouldn't judge you. But the fact that God judges this thing proves that that's not what he's looking for. And so similar to the previous statement that we should glorify God by obedience, not by disobedience, I like to say it this way. God wants to be glorified by imitation, not by contrast. If you live your life like the devil, eventually God can get glory from it by contrast. You're so wicked, his righteousness stands apart as distinct and unique. But really what he wants our disciples to surrender their wills to his will and to walk and live their lives as though Jesus in their shoes lived his life right here and right now and that we will be his clean, holy representatives. And when others see disciples of Christ living an obedient life, God is glorified far more, far more. When people name the name of Christ and don't live accordingly, Eventually, God can work that out for his good because he's God and he's got a way of doing stuff. But let me tell you something. A lot of people go down in the wake of that boat. I mean, there's a lot of people making waves out there with their lives and there's friends and close ones, loved ones, associates, people around them. They see that junk and they're repulsed by it. Last week, we talked about how the hypocrisy drove away the Gentiles, right? The name of God was blasphemed, it said, through the Jews and their hypocrisy. So although God can work it out for his glory in the ultimate case, you don't want to be a part of going down and taking others with you. Glorify him by imitation, not by contrast. Romans 3.8 And not rather, as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So what you have in verse number 8 are two groups of people. You have the people who actually teach. Let's do evil that good may come. Okay? And then you have the people who are slanderously reported to do so. That would be Paul and his group of guys. Right? But the first group, those that actually would say, hey, let's do wrong, God gets the good for it anyway, and we can live it up. They're not Bible-believing people. They are not believing the revelation that God has given to us. They live by a principle. You've heard this principle. The end justifies the means. That's how they live there. That's those people. Look, if the end result is God gets glorified, 
Who cares the means that we use to get the glory to him? The end justifies the means. Sometimes we refer to that as extreme pragmatism. To be pragmatic just means you focus on the result regardless of the process to get the result. There's positive aspects of pragmatism, I get it. But in this case, it's it's an evil example of that, okay? And there are religious people all over the world that have used pragmatism. The end justifies the means. Let's do evil that good might come, right? Uh, Islamic jihad. Let's do evil that good might come in their mind of what good is, the bringing in of Allah's kingdom, right? Uh, In the time of World War II, um, the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, Pius XII, at that time signed a concordant with Adolf Hitler and said that Adolf Hitler's crusade was a holy crusade as he was taking over Europe as the Roman Catholic Austrian that Adolf Hitler was. Uh, things happen, okay? And people of all stripes and flavors, they will, they will justify the means just so that they can get their desired end that they think is good. And that's just not acceptable. That's just not acceptable. The Bible says that their damnation is just. It's just. So let's just notice the connection. Everything starts with God's word, right? What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Unto them were committed the oracles of God. And so that's God's perfect revealed will for man. The next natural step is faith. You put faith in God's word. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 6, it says without faith it's impossible to please him. Right? It says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, many are aware of this, right? It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the word of God is the thing that produces in us the faith in the word of God to eventually then have it affect our lives. And that's obedience. That's the third thing. So it makes sense. It's the natural result of faith. James made it as clear as anybody in 2.18. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have my works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. How in the world can I know if you really have faith if your life doesn't back it up? That's the end of chapter number 2. It's reinforced here again. You can say you believe all you want if you refuse to do what's right, It's kind of a crapshoot, isn't it? You're kind of gambling. Don't really know. But we who have placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ sincerely and truly in the proper gospel, in his atonement for us, the fact that we could do nothing and he did everything, the Bible has a blessed, wonderful doctrine. It's maybe the most blessed doctrine after that of salvation itself, and that is the doctrine of eternal security. And the idea that once you are truly born of the Spirit of God into God's family, there is absolutely nothing that you or anyone could ever do to separate you from the love of God. This is such an elementary, simple, yet wonderfully true doctrine that in our system of discipleship, it's it's right on the front end of the lessons. We want you to understand that, I mean, right out of the gate. It's just that important. And and can I just say that even if somebody did something so terrible as to take their own life, nothing that you could do if you truly know, if you truly receive Christ, five minutes of bad decisions do not wipe out being born into God's family by his spirit. Please know that. Please know that. 
Eternal security, though, by those who would say, yeah, I don't know, man, I, I don't buy that. The, the objection that they give is, is they will say, here's what you're saying. Once saved, always saved. And if you believe that, all you do is you give yourself a license to sin. In other words, if I pray the prayer and I'm good, I got the fire insurance and I'm good, then I can go live like the devil. I can go do what I want. And that's, by the way, the attitude of a corrupt mind that would say that. But that's the idea. And I would say that eternal security in no way whatsoever is a license to sin. God did not save you and give you the free, he gave you the free gift because you could not possibly do anything to get it. By the way, you could not possibly do anything to keep it. If you had to keep it, you wouldn't have it very long. You would not have it very long. And please understand, Christian, God will judge you as he will judge a lost man in every area except sending you to hell. Except that one. If you live like a lost man. And I gave you a little list, and we're not going to look at all the verses, okay? So just skip the verses. But a carnal Christian, you look them up on your own, a carnal Christian can lose his fellowship, he can lose his testimony, he can lose his service, he can lose his rewards, he can lose his health, and he can ultimately lose his life. But he will never lose his salvation. Never. So understand when we stand before a holy God, who we really are, and how righteous and just and fair and loving and kind and patient He is. And we just surrender. That's all He wants. Just to surrender. You have a free will. What about you? Are you sure today that you're saved. That you, God forbid, your physical life ended before this day ended. That you are 100% sure that you would have your home with God in heaven. Or are you among the people that still justify your sin somehow before God? Will you agree with him about who you really are, who we all are, Will you confess your sin? Will you believe the gospel? Will you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Because regardless of everybody else, for whatever reason you want to think about, you're here today. God brought you here to hear this message. God brought you here so that you could make your choice before it's too late. Because you never know what a day might hold. And maybe that's never been clearer than this weekend. So let's pray together. And if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to ask you a quick question. And that would be this. If you're here and you would say, Jeff, I'm not sure I'm saved. If my life ended, I'm not sure I'd have a home in heaven, but I really want to know. I want to pray for you. I want to pray intelligently. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. So if you would say, that's me. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be. Would you please hold your hand up and just, hold, just keep it up for a second? There's a couple of young people down front. God bless you. Thank you so much. Anybody upstairs? Anybody at all? I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be. Anybody at all? 
I just want to pray for you. That's all. Anybody down here on the right-hand side? Anybody else? I see it on the right side. Thank you. You can put your hand down. I appreciate it. Several people. Listen, if you're here and you're a Christian and you're justifying your sin and you're trying to figure out how it's okay to get away with your level of sinfulness, please, can I beg you to reconsider? Can I beg you just to fall on your face and cry out for mercy like David did after he was made aware of his sin? And just clean up your accounts with God. Confess it to him and beg him for mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Again, it's a subject that's not always pleasant, but boy, it's very healing to know our real problem and our real condition. We go to the doctor and he has bad news, but we want to know what's wrong with us so that we can know what we need to do. I pray, Lord Jesus, for each and every one of these, and there were several that raised their hand and said they're not sure if they're saved, that right now in their own way, that they would just cry out to you, that they would just agree that they're sinful, because it's true, we all are. That they would confess that sin, that they would ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive them personally, and to come into their heart and their life, and to give them the free gift of eternal life right now, that they would just surrender and cry out to you, and surrender their life to your life, Lord Jesus then they will be saved. They will have that free gift of eternal life. And I pray that they would do that. And I pray for the Christians who are here and who would say that, yeah, I, I know I'm saved, but wow, I've, I've been running. My life is not clean. I've been trying to justify it. I've come up with reasons why I'm better than the other guy, but it's not right. And God's made it clear to me. I pray, Lord, that they also would just humbly repent. They would confess that sin. That they would surrender their heart to you in totality. And they would joyfully just beg you to forgive them, to give mercy and forgiveness. And that they would have a, a clean slate. That they would have a fresh start. That when we stand up and walk out of this building today, we would know that we have cleaned our account with you. Thank you for offering that. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for allowing us that privilege. We pray in your holy name. Amen.